0: I would expect that it's probably been a while since you heard a sermon from the book of Nahum, so let's do a little background work here. We studied a few weeks ago the book of Jonah. Jonah was the reluctant prophet of God. I think we referred to Jonah that night as the world's worst missionary. And God called him to go to Nineveh, a great city in the Assyrian Empire. And Jonah resisted God's call in his life. Instead of going to Nineveh, he went down to Joppa and got in a boat and headed off to Tarshish. He went in the opposite direction of the direction that God had called him to go. You may remember that Jonah makes frequent reference to the size and scope of the city of Nineveh. There is even a reference by God in the conclusion of the book of Jonah that Nineveh contains 120,000 people and much livestock. Now, you may not think a lot of a city that's 120,000 in population today But in the ancient Near East, 120,000 people in close proximity could be a problem in more ways than one. There were a lot of people in the city of Nineveh. In fact, Nineveh literally means, it's translated as nine cities. It was the size of nine cities, at least figuratively, in that day. The same Nineveh that Jonah was called to preach to in the book of Jonah, now Nahum goes to make his declaration of God's judgment against them. Remember that Nineveh is again a part of the Assyrian Empire. And in the time leading up to the explosion of the Babylonian Empire, the Babylonians being those that carried the people of Judah away captive under Nebuchadnezzar, that would be the period of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there's a great deal of the Old Testament that unfolds within that window of time. Prior to the Babylonians, it was the Assyrians or the Assyrian Empire that were the big dogs on the block. They were a major world power in the ancient Near East. Nineveh is a significant city there. Now, not only did Babylon later prove to be a problem for the people of Israel, specifically the people in the south, but even before that, the Assyrians were really problematic for the northern tribes of Israel, those 10 tribes known as uh, Ephraim or Israel in the north. In 722, that's a date we've mentioned a few times, the Assyrian Empire comes in And they exile the Israelites, they carry them away captive, and they uh, displace them, not only by carrying them away, but planting within their midst other peoples. And the product of the relationship that begins to exist between those other Gentile peoples and the Israelites that had formerly inhabited that area is the Samaritans that you see in the New Testament. So the Assyrian Empire comes in and completely changes the ethnic landscape of the ten northern tribes and, for that reason, completely changes the religious landscape of the ten northern tribes as well. It's that Assyrian Empire to which the prophecy of Nahum is intended. It is against the city of Nineveh, but in a broader sense, it is against the Assyrian Empire. Now, you'll remember that the end of Jonah... Jonah is sitting under a, a, a bush that was placed there temporarily, soon to be destroyed by a worm, and very distraught over the fact that this city had come to repentance. In fact, Jonah says, that's why I didn't want to come here. You told me to come here and to preach judgment, and I knew what would happen. They would turn, and you would show them grace, and that's exactly what God did. There, there's a sweeping revival that takes the city of Nineveh in the book of Jonah, Right? Now, here we are 150 or so years later in the book of Nahum, and that revival of old has long since passed. Whatever impact Jonah's ministry had 150 years ago had since been forgotten in the Assyrian Empire and had since been forgotten among the people of Nineveh. Now, since Jonah's time of prophetic ministry in Nineveh, the Assyrians had continued in their cruel treatment not only of Israel and Judah in the south, but of other neighboring nations as well. And Nahum comes to the Assyrians in Nineveh to let them know that God has determined that it is time that they pay the piper. Now think about that. A hundred and fifty years. And finally, in the language of Genesis 15, 16, the, the sins of the Assyrians have filled themselves up. The long-suffering, the, long the patience of God has now passed for the Assyrian people and God will exact judgment against them. I'm always interested in these conversations and just a brief comment we're we'll getting to the text but I'm always interested in these conversations that that wish to poke holes in our embrace of God as he is on the basis of God's not bringing or failing in their from their perspective to bring judgment against those who do such wicked and vile things. The problem with that line of thinking is that it disregards that we are ourselves wicked and vile, and but for the patience, the long-suffering of God toward us, we would all be destroyed. But it stands. It stands. The justice of God dictates that eventually, apart from Christ, we will all answer for our sins. And payday has now come for the Assyrian Empire. Usually I give you an outline of the book. And then I give you some key themes. Tonight, your key themes are going to operate as the outline for the book. Then, uh, Nahum is just three short chapters, and you see something of an outline with the key themes there uh, that are before you in your handout. You see in chapter 1, in, uh, chapter one, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 1, uh, the prophecy of Nahum summarized. Look to verse 2. The Bible says here the Lord is a jealous God, or jealous. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is fierce in wrath. The Lord takes vengeance against his foes. He is furious with his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will never leave the guilty unpunished. His path is in the whirlwind and the storm, and the clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea so that it dries up. And he makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither, even the flower of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him and the hills melt because the earth trembles at his presence. The world and all who live in it, who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his burning anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. Even rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in a day of distress. He cares for those who take refuge in him. This might be my favorite part of Nineveh, of the book of, of Nahum. I guess I'm going to call Nahum Nineveh all night, but you'll understand what I intend by that. Here at the beginning of the prophecy, Nahum establishes for his listener. He makes clear that we understand the nature, the character of the God we serve, the character of the God who, who's now prepared to exact justice against the Assyrian people. The Bible says here in verses 2 through 7 that he is a jealous God. That is, he wants for, God desires the worship and the praise of every man, woman, and child. You know, there's always a question about this whole idea of God being characteristically jealous. And people will ask, if it is that God is jealous, why is it then a negative thing or a bad thing, a sinful thing, if I am jealous? And the answer to that question is that you are not God. It is, it is morally right that God would be jealous for the worship of his people. In fact, it is in our interest that God would be jealous for the worship of our people. We are at our best. We are most fulfilled. We are best satisfied. We are happiest. We are most joyous when God is the treasure of our heart. The fact that God desires that doesn't make him a megalomaniac. It, it's, it makes him a God who's looking out for the well being, for the best interest of his people. W- one of the benefits of being an all knowing God is that he is completely aware, more aware than we are, of his own moral perfection, of the degree to which he is worthy of our worship and our praise, and how we stand to be bettered reflecting on his worthiness of worship and praise. You may be jealous. And that's a sinful thing because we don't deserve what we've got, let alone what we don't have. But when the Bible says that God is a jealous God, that's a feature of his moral perfection, not a ding in his character. The Bible says here he is a jealous God. Verse 3 makes it clear that he is a patient and a powerful God. Verse 3 says the Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. He's he's the sleeping giant. He has the ability to do what needs to be done when it needs to be done. But out of grace and mercy toward us, he's patient and, and loving that way. Can I give you a really bad example of this? I have friends that have known me for a long time, and so they know the things that not only appeal to the new Wade, but maybe to some extent to the old Wade as well. And I had a buddy that sent me a fight video a few weeks ago. Those are all bad, right? But the fight video was especially entertaining because the gentlemen who were attempting to be scuffed up in this particular entanglement were much smaller than their counterparts. And they did all within their power for an extended period of time to try to sort of de-escalate the situation. But there comes a point in this exchange where it's clear that the two smaller individuals in the video decide that they've had more than enough. One is already bleeding from his face. And they turn to one another and with a grin decide that the time for these two much larger gentlemen has run its course. And they go to work on those two big boys in a way that I haven't seen in a long, (laughs) long time. Now, I don't know if it's part of the image of God in me that delights in that kind of justice Or it's just that I'm a sinful person. But I got to tell you, I took a little delight in what I saw in that video. You know what I mean? Here we have a picture in perfection of a God who has this kind of capacity beyond anything that we could think or imagine. He doesn't have to prove to himself his power, his ability. He doesn't have to demonstrate for anyone to find evidence in his great strength. Rather, with great grace and mercy and meekness, he deals with us until our sins have overflowed. And he determines, perfectly determines, when the day of judgment is to come. He is patient toward his people. But brothers and sisters, he is great in his power. The people of Israel and neighboring nations often make the mistake of misinterpreting the patience of God for the powerlessness of God. And it's always a grave mistake to make, brothers and sisters. Not only is he patient toward us, but he is great in his power. And you may trifle with God for a season, but in due time, the payday will ultimately come. He is patient, the Bible says, and he is powerful. He is a good and compassionate God. In verse 7, the Bible says, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of distress. He cares for those who take refuge in him. There is a safe place for us in God. There's a hiding place for us in God. Bo, our littlest one, he has a spot. And uh, when he wants to do what he wants to do, and not be in trouble for doing what he's not supposed to do, he goes to the hiding place, right? Now, you, you don't need to run to God for license to do what you ought not to do or even what you want to do. But it's nice to know that there's a safe place for us in the Father, right? We always know with him, if he's in that place, he's doing something he's not supposed to be doing. <laughs> We, we, we typically run to our hiding place because we have done something that we know we shouldn't have done. And there's safety with the Father because of his patience and because of his power. There are three cycles of judgment described in what remains of chapter 1. We're not going to read through all of them there. You've heard these kind of typical expressions of God's judgment against the people in uh, previous prophetic books. Verse 9 is an example or a, even a sample of this. The Bible says, Whatever you plot against the Lord, he will bring it to complete destruction. Oppression will not rise up a second time, for they will be consumed like entangled thorns, like the drink of a drunkard, and like the straw that is fully dry. One is gone out from you, plots evil against Yahweh, and is a wicked counselor. God knows what they've done. He has determined the judgment against them, and there will be no escaping. Once, twice, and three times, Nahum declares the judgment that is to come against the people of Assyria. When you get to chapter 2 and verses 3 and following, actually verse 2 and following, you may be reading along here, and my outline is not entirely reflective of what I want it to be uh, communicating here. This is one of those places where the Hebrew Bible's numbers are different. So like when I say chapter 2, verse 2, what I really mean is chapter 2, verse 1, because... Well, the numbers are different, and it gets confusing even for me, but the numbers are different. They're not confusing. Verse 2 of chapter 2 with describing the destruction of Nineveh. Here the downfall, uh, the downfall rather, of Nineveh is foretold with vivid imagery uh, depicting this heavy judgment that is to come against them. Look at verse 2. For the Lord will restore the majesty of Jacob, yes, the majesty of Israel, through ravagers, uh, though ravagers have ravaged them and ruined their vine branches. The shields of his warriors are dyed red. The valiant men are dressed in scarlet. The fittings of the chariot flash like fire on the day of its battle preparations. And the spears are brandished. This is God's soldiers coming against the Assyrian people. If you look to verses 7 and 8, the Bible says beauty is stripped She is carried away. Her ladies-in-waiting moan like the sound of doves and beat their breasts. Nineveh has been like a pool of water from her first days, but they are fleeing. Stop, stop, they cry, but no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end to the treasure and abundance of every precious thing. Desolation, decimation, devastation, hearts melt, knees tremble, loins shake, every face grows pale. This once proud empire will be brought to its knees by the judgment that God is to bring against them. And the description of the city post-judgment is desolation, decimation, and destruction. Verses 11 and 12 describe Nineveh as a lion, this predatory power in the ancient Near East verse 11, the Bible says, When the lions layer the feeding ground of the young lions, where the lions and, and lioness proud, and the, and the lions cub with nothing to frighten them away? Where are they? The lion mauled whatever its cub needed and strangled prey for its lionesses. It filled up its dens with the kill and its lairs with mauled prey. Beware, I am against you. This is the declaration of the Lord of hosts. I will make your chariots go up in smoke, and the sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the sound of your messengers will never be heard again. He's describing an empire that is great in its power. They have been the predatory power in the ancient world. But now the young lions will be cut down with a sword. And those who are perhaps fearful in hiding or incapable of providing for their own need, the aged lions and the, and the lionesses are now starved to death in the absence of those young lions cut down by the sword. They're described here in a way that not only communicates the power that they enjoyed in the height of the Assyrian Empire, but also serves to us as a reminder that no matter how great we perceive our power to be, God is always greater than his enemies. There is no enemy sufficient to the task of withstanding the judgment of God. And we're not. We may push against it. We we may shake our fist and we may kick against the goads in our life, but you are no match for the power of God's judgment against you. And the sooner we're able to come to grips with that reality, to take note that not only has he not overlooked our sin, but judgment will come for our sin, the sooner we're able to yield to his direction, to break down our pride, to submit ourselves to his authority, the better it always works out for us. And when when Israel, when Judah rather, was carried away by the Babylonians, the latter part of Jeremiah's ministry to the people of Judah was to say to them, just surrender. That was God's admonition to them, just surrender, just surrender, just surrender. In fact, Jeremiah said, get out of sin city, get out of Jerusalem, get out of sin city and surrender, get away from here. You cannot win this battle. And my advice to you, in the last days and conversations with people, even what I believe to be Christian folk who have given themselves over to such sin and seem to refuse to want to come away from that. Because you better get out of sin city and you better surrender to God or the end will be worse than the first. The young lion is about to be devoured by the judgment of God no matter how he regards his power. And then the final section of the prophecy of Nahum is verses 1 through 19 of chapter 3, which really describes the purpose or the cause for God's judgment against them. What is it that the people of Nineveh have done To arouse the wrath of God against them. Verse 1 of chapter 3 gives us some indication. Verse 1 says Woe to the city of blood, totally deceitful, full of plunder, never without prey. We talked in our introduction about the fact that Assyria would come in and they would exile a people and they would replace the removed population with peoples from other areas. So they're basically coming in, they're plucking up people groups from different places and they're putting them down to sort of um, take them out of their culture, to dilute any cultural influence, to dilute any want for uh, power within a group, to sort of diminish the ability to find community and oneness in opposition to the Assyrian Empire. They basically came in and ransacked the lives of their subjects in order to ensure that their power remained in place well into the future. This was a, a vicious people. Even within the context of war in the ancient Near East, which was often a very brutal thing, the Assyrians were exceptional for their bloodthirst and the cruelty with which they treated neighboring nations. God has not been ignorant to that, right? God sees. God sees. And the payday has been come. We, we don't see this kind of thing in our culture. And on the occasion that we do, it turns our stomach and we wonder how long God will bear with us. I think the best examples of this level of cruelty that we've seen in recent history are uh, examples from ISIS in Syria and some of the atrocities that were unfolding there. These types of things are happening on the African continent with increasing regularity, but we don't cover them in the news for a variety of reasons. Um, When we see those, doesn't it turn your stomach when you see those kinds of things? And we wonder where the justice or the judgment of God is. 150 years has passed. And 150 years worth of judgment is about to be poured out on the city of Nineveh. They're described here as a city of blood, totally deceitful, full of plunder, never without prey. In other words, the wealth of the Assyrian Empire has been established on the goods, the plunder of those that they have attacked and conquered. And verse 4, the Bible says, because of the continual prostitution of the prostitute, the attractive mistress of sorcery, who betrays nations by her prostitution and clans by her witchcraft. I am against you. This is the declaration of the Lord of hosts. Most everywhere that I'm aware of in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, that prostitution is made reference to, it typically means spiritual prostitution but most everywhere spiritual prostitution is made reference to, there's an element of prostitution that is involved in the spiritual prostitution that the people have given themselves over to. It is an interesting thing how often sexual immorality comes with idolatry in the Old Testament context. And we like to think that we have advanced beyond that in our sophistication, but if you will think hard, you'll find that sexual immorality always comes with adultery in Western civil, uh, with sexual immorality, In Western civilization as well what you see happening in the world around us with so much sexual immorality especially with LGBTQ issues in the current day are all the product of a Romans 1 culture where we've exchanged the worship of the Creator for the worship of the creature and the product of that is always God's giving us over to the depravity of our minds and the scrambling of our thoughts Spiritual adultery always results in a physical or sexual manner of immorality. It's just always the case. Both of these are at work within the Assyrian Empire. They've given themselves over to idolatry. This is not a people that has been known historically as God's people or even God-fearers in a Gentile sense. But they knew, right? Jonah was there 150 years ago as the world's worst missionary, but he had a good message of repentance and grace for them. Many of them experienced it in that day. It may not have been long-lived, but an opportunity was afforded the people of Assyria. Instead of worshiping the one true and living God, they gave themselves over to the worship of various pagan idols and to cult prostitution. In verse 8, the Bible says, Are you better than thieves that set along the Nile with water surrounding her, whose rampart was the sea, the river, her wall? Cush and Egypt were her endless source of strength. Put in Libya were among her allies, yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her children were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her dignitaries, and all her noble nobles were bound in chains. It's a reference to an Egyptian city that was well fortified and strategically placed. The city of Nineveh not only had great walls and great military fortification, it was in an ideal geographical location. They had not only the walls that would have protected them, not only did they have elevation, which would have been a protection to them, but they had a body of water that would have assisted in their protection as a city as well. Because of that, they grew arrogant. They boasted of their location, their strength, that their city, that Nineveh, was impenetrable. God says, don't you remember Thebes in Egypt? They felt the same way, and they crumbled at an incoming invasion. And you will too. Here again, we're reminded that there is no enemy of God that is any match for God. There is no opposition to God that can withstand the judgment of God. And for that matter, there's no opposition to God that can withstand God's sovereign will in our life. God will have his way. He will do as he pleases. It comes with the territory of being God. In my petition to you, listen, I know I'm talking to Wednesday night Christian folks, and Wednesday night Christian folks are exceptional Christian folks. I got all of that. But if there's any inclination in your heart tonight of holding fast to what you know to be sinned against God, you had better let it go before God lets go of it for you. You're no match for God. I'm no match for God. The hardest of heart is no match for our sovereign God. In their arrogance, they boasted of their location. They boasted of their military power. They boasted of their ability to withstand any incoming invasion, but they would be no match for the God of heaven. And listen, there's a bit of Americana in this idea. We boast in our superiority over all nations. We boast in our position as world power. We boast in the strength of our borders. I get that can be a little bit contentious, but we boast in all sorts of stuff, right? We boast in our nuclear power. We boast in our military fortitude. And all of those things are wonderful. But it has never been our military fortitude. It has never been our economic prowess that has prospered and protected us as a people. It has always been the providential hand of a God who has looked favorably upon us in spite of our pretty persistent foolishness, right? We've no place to boast, we've no room to boast. When the day of God's wrath determines to come against us, we will not withstand that flood of wrath. There is no opposition and no enemy that will stand against the judgment of God when God determines to bring judgment against us. In the closing two verses of Nehemiah 3, the Bible says, King of Assyria, your shepherds slumber, your officers sleep, your people are scattered across the mountains with no one to gather them together. There's no remedy for your injury. Your wound is severe. All who hear the news about you will clap their hands because of you for who has not experienced your constant cruelty. For their predatory behavior, for their idolatry, for their arrogance, and for their cruelty, God would bring judgment against them. And and among the strong evidence that they deserve the judgment that would come against them, God says all people everywhere will applaud the day of your demise because of the cruelty with which you've dealt with other nations. Nahum reminds us of a number of important lessons with regards to God. Perhaps the most important is that in due time, God God will judge sin. Someday, remember the old R.G. Lee sermon, Pay Day Someday? Sometimes great periods of time pass before the judgment we deserve eventually comes. But payday always comes. It always comes. And brothers and sisters, but, but for running to Christ and hiding behind the blood of Jesus, it will come for us as well. There, there's a reminder here that one day every man, woman, and child is going to pay the piper. There are reminders here, pretty constant reminders that our feelings of moral or military superiority, even financial superiority, won't be a protection for us when the day of judgment finally comes. In fact, it may serve to enhance the weight of our demise. Can you imagine the rug being swept from beneath us as a people and taken even to a place that would be understood as comfortable for most of the world? Do you realize how well off we are? Do you realize how fragile that is? How it's a good and faithful God who holds that together? And how in an instant he could turn it loose and we could go spiraling into judgment. It's a reminder here of the power of God and the goodness of God toward us and that he holds us together, not just as individuals, but collectively as a people, that he holds nations together. He sets our boundaries. He dictates to us what will and will not unfold in our day-to-day. I'm thankful for that kind of God. I stand in fear and trembling at that kind of God, but I rejoice that that kind of God has his hand on the will of my life and the whole world in his hands. Aren't you glad for that? We talked a lot about judgment tonight. I'd be out of the way if I didn't mention that there is a special place of refuge for us to hide from the wrath to come, and his name is Jesus He has invited us to take refuge in him. You know, in in Genesis 6, when the flood comes, Noah's invitation is get in the boat, right? But in the last days, when the flood of God's wrath comes against this world, it's not a boat you're going to be looking to get in. It's the body of Christ you want to be found within. I really think that that in Christ language of the New Testament is, is quite intentional. Noah withstood the judgment of God in an ark. We withstand the judgment of God in Christ. Find your place in him. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth and this note of encouragement to us tonight. God, we pray that you would save your enemies. God, we pray that you would work justice and bring judgment against your enemies as you see fit. We pray that your will would be done. We pray that you would protect us from ever positioning ourselves in opposition to your will. Lord, before Christ, we were enemies of God, aliens, hell-bound, haters of God, ignorant and blind to our status. And in grace, you've looked upon us with mercy and you saved us and you gave us eyes to see who you are, your preciousness that you are worthy of praise we pray that for those who stumble in blindness god where there is persistence in unrighteousness lord and and the the mistreatment of your people where cruelty abounds we pray for justice for mercy for your people your hand of protection over them we thank you that we found by faith our safe place in jesus that in Christ, that behind the blood, we are well protected from the wrath that is to come. God, preserve us, sanctify us, help us to walk faithfully with you. God, forgive us where we come short. In Jesus' name.